shared on Facebook on uh, Wednesday night that last week was a little surreal for me, especially um, the end of the week. Uh, I had the privilege of getting to go and share in the uh, to a group of 10 juniors and seniors uh, in the theories of biblical preaching class at my alma mater uh, for undergraduate work, Johnson University. And so it was surreal because about this same time of year, uh, in 1997, uh, I was sitting in a chapel service at the top of the hill uh, at Johnson University and what was the chapel. It's now been condemned and they're going to repurpose and tear down and repair, but uh, I was sitting in a service there on a Wednesday night when a student by the name of John Pape preached his senior sermon. They used to allow seniors on the preaching program to, to share a message in front of the whole student body. And I was sitting there that night and he preached on Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Uh, if any one of you wants to come after me, must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And he made several points of application in that message, uh, of which most of them I don't remember. Uh, but the one that I do remember is that he said that there are some of you here tonight who have been resisting taking up the cross of full-time ministry to preach and to teach, to serve as youth ministers and preachers and children's ministers. And there was something in that moment as he was teaching and preaching, and I can't explain it any more than, like, there was a sense of that something grabbed a hold of me inside and it was just like, Craig, he's talking to you. And if you knew my story up to that point, I had resisted even thinking about working in a church full-time. I didn't have all the best experiences with uh, pastors and preachers and their families, and I didn't want to be one of those pastors and those preachers. And um, I, was in, I was even chosen by my senior class uh, for a senior superlative which was the most likely to become a preacher. I don't know if they still do this, but at that time for our high school yearbook, again, this is like 1996, they said, Craig, we want to take a picture of you and put your picture in the yearbook. And underneath it, we're going to put most likely to become a preacher. And I said, no way. Um, and so they had to find somebody else. I went off to Johnson to be a teacher on the teacher's education program. I was going to teach, I was going to coach. And that didn't work out. And so there I found myself uh, on that hill about this time of year in 1997 and uh, John was preaching and I just sensed that he was talking to me and so I left chapel that night I remember seeing my breath in the air and I just walked down the hill and around the campus for the better part of an hour I wrestled with God God I don't want to be a preacher I don't want to work in a church I don't want to do these things um, and I should have read Genesis because I realized that if you wrestle with God you lose every time and uh and so at the end of that night and lots of conversation and prayer with God around that circle, I said, okay, I'll go to the registrar's office in the morning and I'll sign on to the youth ministry preaching program. And the rest of it continues to be history, his story as he works it out in my life. And so I'm back on that campus this week, similar time of year, preparing to share in a class of people who are going to be youth ministers and preachers and children's ministers. It's like this powerful full circle moment that reminded me of how God wants to work in our lives and get a hold of our hearts in a number of ways. It's not always for ministry. It's sometimes for something else, a lot of times for other things, but how he leads and works. And 
and leads us on adventures together. And so for that reason and many others, I associate East Tennessee, Knoxville, Sevierville, Gatlinburg, Pigeon Forge with adventure. Um, uh, there's something in me that kind of comes alive when I get near the mountains. I don't know what it is, and that may surprise you. I don't exactly look like a, a mountain man. I can't grow a beard, but I, I love being near uh, like mountains and rugged terrain. There's something about seeing this gravel road that kind of disappears up into the steep mountain that like, I want to go see what's up there. I want to go climb it. I want to I go see what's going on. And so this kind of adventuresome spirit comes alive in me, not just because of how God got a hold of my heart there, but because of just the scene and you can stand on part of the campus and look out on a clear day and you can see the outline of the Smoky Mountains and it's just like this place of adventure. So I'm down there this week and for, for three or four days at the end of the week and uh, not only do I have these feelings of nostalgia and remembering and uh, thinking about the rugged mountains, but I'm seeing these rugged vehicles, which there's just something about a truck uh, or a rugged SUV in East Tennessee with all-terrain tires and adventure rack that just is like, hey, this is incredible. And so if I ever were to live anywhere other than the Midwest, it would probably be somewhere near the mountains. I know that people say you're either a beach person or a mountain person, and I am a mountain person uh, all day. There's something about that adventure. Um, I'm captivated by adventure brands. Uh, I, you know, in, in, in my lifetime, I'm 44. I think, is that right? Yes. <laughs> I'm 44. Uh, I can't do math quickly sometimes. And uh, I've seen the rise of so many cool adventure brands. Um, I don't own a lot of the stuff, but it's neat. Like uh, Yeti markets themselves all about adventure. And I think about Patagonia and the North Face and Merrill and Columbia. And the list goes on and on of these things. They want to outfit you for the adventure. Um, the closest I sometimes get to adventure is our little SUV. Uh, it's actually branded as an adventure model, which, by the way, for an SUV in the Midwest, what that means is that it has an extra inch of ground clearance, which means that you can drive over a little bit larger turtles in the road. And uh, it has all-terrain tires. It has an all-weather package. It comes with heated windshield wipers, which, you know, for these incredibly tundra rugged winters of Indiana. It comes in really handy, not very often, but, uh, but that's my adventure typically. Um, so why all this talk about adventure? Because when I think about the Spirit of God and how he's worked in my life, but even more importantly, what we see in the pages of Scripture and the story of human history and how he works is that the Spirit of God is in the adventure business. The Spirit of God is all about leading God's people on incredible adventures. The Spirit of God wants to lead us on an amazing adventure as he works through us in incredible ways. You need to own this. The Spirit of God wants to lead you on an amazing adventure, on amazing adventures. He wants to work through you in incredible ways. He is a spirit that leads us on adventures. You read through scripture and you see people encounter God in powerful ways and as he prompts them and he, he, he leads them and as they listen to him, as they respond to his leading and his urging and his compelling, God does incredible things in their lives. Yes, huge things like maybe calling you into a new type of ministry or sending you to a new place, but, but just as big of things that seem little and, and inviting you to come along some, beside somebody and pray with them or support them or encourage them. The Spirit of God is in the adventure business. One of the things that we know about adventures is that they usually have to have something that's unfamiliar with them. 
and something that makes us feel a little bit at risk. There's a little bit of unknown because that heightens our senses and makes it feel like more of an adventure. And the Spirit of God is known for leading us in places where not everything is known and sometimes very few things are known. But God is known. And he takes us and he leads us and he takes us and we experience incredible things as he works through us. The Celtic Christians referred to the Holy Spirit as in-ged gloss. Uh, that was their Celtic language for describing the Holy Spirit. I, I discovered this for the first time in a book by Mark Batterson, uh, one of my favorite books called The Wild Goose Chase. In-ged gloss was the Celtic way of saying the wild goose. They described the Holy Spirit as the wild goose because they would look out at the Scottish and, and Irish highlands and wetlands and the cliffs and, and they would see the, the geese come in and if you would go to try to catch one of them, uh, a wild goose chase would be on. It's hard to, to know where they're going to be and where they're going to go and to capture them. And that was their way of describing how the Spirit of God would lead and guide us in life. And even hearing that picture and the sense of adventure makes me think of Jesus' own words. We turn to John chapter 3 a lot for um, one of our favorite, most famous passages. John chapter 3, verse 16, reminds us that God loved the world so much that he sent his one and only son uh, to die for us. He gave us his one and only son that whoever would choose to believe in him they wouldn't die forever, but have everlasting life. And we love those words because of the hope that they proclaim. But just before he shares uh, that message with Nicodemus, here's what Jesus speaks to him about the Spirit. He speaks about the Spirit in terms of the wind. He says this in verse 8, The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Everyone born of the Spirit. Everyone in whom the Spirit of God dwells is carried along like the wind. You can hear it sometimes. You can see its effect in the trees. But to nail down where it comes from or where it is going, it's an adventure. And that's what it's like to be led and to be blown along and to be carried along by the Spirit of God. Where will he lead next? What will he compel me to do? How will he lead me through his word? What adventure is he going to send me on? The Spirit of God is in the adventure business. There was a, a commentator, a pastor who wrote a commentary in the book of Acts. His name's R.K. Hughes. And he says that the Holy Spirit is God's hitchhiker. Like he's just always ready for a new adventure. It's this idea of have spirit, will travel. Like where am I gonna go next, God? What are you going to do? Do we have that sense of the Holy Spirit ourselves? In the first week of this series, as we continue this long look at Acts, we're in this mini-series on the Holy Spirit, we saw that the Holy Spirit is a prominent role player in the book of Acts. And probably if we're honest, he's not just a prominent role player, he is the lead role player. Because the Holy Spirit is God's agent, God's presence with us who allows us to continue the mission of Jesus in this world as he works it out through his people to bring about the things that matter to the heart of God, to, to bring his kingdom come, to help his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that unfolds across all of the records of the book of Acts. He's the lead role player. 
Um, we saw last week that that Holy Spirit wants to work in us. He wants to do his renovating work in us. He wants to shape us and transform us and help our beliefs and our attitudes and our actions to come into alignment with Jesus. He wants the character of Jesus, the character of Christ to be reflected in us. So he does that renovating work. He uses his word. He uses other people to help shape us and mold us. We look more and more like his son. And this week we're going to look at how he wants to work through us. And as we allow him to work through us, he takes us on this incredible adventure. We could turn to many places in the book of Acts to to look at the adventure that the Holy Spirit wants to lead us on. A few places that came to mind, I thought, well, we could go to Acts chapter 10 if we wanted to. In Acts chapter 10, there's this really neat story um, where Peter is sleeping on the roof of a home and in the middle of his afternoon slumber, uh, he has this vision of a sheet descending from the heavens. And on the sheet are, are all kinds of creatures that for him as a Jewish man would have been considered unclean. And, and, and in the vision, he's told to kind of take from that and eat. And it's this whole little bizarre vision. And, and as that vision ends, the spirit of God, the word of God tells us, tells Peter to get up to go downstairs, that there are some guys that have traveled a long way, and he's supposed to go with them because the gospel is going to be coming to the Gentiles. So he just had this vision about how unclean things can be eaten, and now he's going to be going to a people that as a Jewish man he would have considered as unclean, and they're going to get to receive the gospel. And it's the Spirit of God that says, hey, get up from your nap and get up from this really weird vision and go with these guys you don't know, and and while you go with them, you're going to come to this man, Cornelius. Oh, by the way, um, he's a pretty elite guy. Like He he commands soldiers. People answer to him, and, and you're going to get to tell him about me. Isn't that amazing? But we're not going to go there. We, we could go to uh, Acts chapter 13, and we could see how Paul and, and, and Barnabas are, are worshiping with the believers in Antioch, and the Spirit of God stirs the hearts of the leaders there and says, we, we want you to pray over them and set them apart to, to carry the good news of Jesus throughout the world. And then following that, It says this in verse four of Acts chapter 13, the two of them, this is Paul and Barnabas, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. And it just speaks about the journey they go on as the Spirit of God leads them. But instead of looking at those accounts or any other large or small accounts as God's Spirit works through, I wanna linger in Acts chapter eight this morning. Acts chapter 8 tells the story of Philip and others, but Philip primarily, and how the Spirit of God led him on an amazing adventure and worked through him in incredible ways. I want to look at these accounts in Philip's life because I want you to be impressed as I have been this week that the same God that's at work in Philip's life is at work in yours. And the same God that took Philip on an amazing adventure and worked through him in incredible ways is doing and prepared to do the same in you. A little background on Philip as we move into Acts 8. Uh, In Acts chapter 6, you may recall that there um, 
are some widows who are, are in need of care. And so the Jewish widows are being treated really well, uh, but the Greek widows are being ignored. And so the apostles say, this isn't good. Uh, let's get uh, some, some men who are full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom and let them have this task of taking care of these widows so no one gets neglected. They'll distribute the food fairly and rightly and in a God-honoring way so we can focus on preaching and teaching. And so select seven men. The first man mentioned is a man named Stephen, and the second one mentioned is a man named Philip. Well, Stephen's story continues in Acts chapter 7, where he preaches this incredible sermon, but it angers religious leaders. We looked at this several weeks ago in our um, School of Acts series, and he ends up being stoned and killed because of his testimony about Jesus. So Luke then turns to Philip, the second among the seven that is mentioned in I was curious this week as to why this is Philip, uh, the servant from Acts 6, and not Philip, the apostle mentioned in the list of disciples. And uh, you may have that same question. And so just to give you kind of the case for Philip being among the seven, uh, first is that Acts chapter 8 tells us in the early verses that when persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So the apostles didn't get to, to, to leave right away. Uh, more evidence suggests that uh, in Acts chapter 21, verse 8, it says that Philip, who was among the seven, uh, was in Caesarea. When you look to the end of Acts chapter 8, verse 40, we find Philip in Caesarea. So, so here is this servant of God, this one who's full of the spirit and wisdom, and he is scattered along with fellow believers. It says in verse 4 of Acts chapter 8 that those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. A couple of things to note here. One, that those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. That word preached is uh, the word we get gospel from, the word we get evangelism from. It's a word that means to herald or to tell or to proclaim the good news, the message about who Jesus is, what he has done, what it means for us, what he wants to do through us and for the world. And so here are these believers who are scattered by the persecution. And what do they do? They just can't wait to tell other people about Jesus. Another interesting aside here is that I am guessing that when great persecution breaks out against the church in Jerusalem, uh, there are some anxious people. There are some weary people. There are some people confused at why difficult times have to come to them, why they have to leave places they're comfortable, and why they have to go to places they don't know. But God uses that persecution, and God uses that dispersing to accomplish his mission. And something that you and I need to be aware of is that when difficulties come in our life, we won't often know why God allows them, but we can know that God will use them to accomplish his mission and his purposes. And just as this was true in the first century AD, it's true for us today. In 2022, it'll be true in 2023, it'll be true in 2024. 
And so as you look out at our world, as you look out at our country, as you look out at your life and you wonder, what on earth can come from this, God? This is not what I want. This is not comfortable. Know that God will use it even if we don't understand the why. As we are faithful, we experience and come to see his faithfulness even more. So God uses Philip. He's one of these that gets scattered and he goes out and he proclaims in Samaria the Messiah. He proclaims Jesus. Like we're seeing the fulfillment of what Jesus promised in Acts chapter one, verse eight, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria now and then to the ends of the world. And what's really neat with Philip is he gets to be a part of not only being his witness in Jerusalem, not only being his witness in Judea and Samaria, but he will share the good news of Jesus with an Ethiopian and be one of the first to help the good news go to the furthest reaches of the world. And that's the story that I wanna focus on in our last moments together. It's in Acts chapter eight, verses 26 to forty. And it just helps us see what it looks like to allow the Spirit of God to lead us on an amazing adventure and work through us and the incredible things that happen because of it. Acts 8, 26 says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandaki. Um, your Bible may have a word that says, it looks like Candace, but it's, uh, it's pronounced Kandaki. It's a, a dynastic term that means queen of the Ethiopians. It's not a personal name. Uh, this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture that the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. He proclaimed to him the good news. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down under the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching, proclaiming, the gospel, the good news in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. What an incredible adventure. If you think about the story, here is a man, we're told he's an Ethiopian eunuch. He's on his way from Jerusalem back to Ethiopia, having worshiped God in Jerusalem. 
And he encounters a man who suddenly starts running alongside his chariot and engages him in conversation. And in that conversation, he grows to understand the fullness of the faith that he's begun. That it's not just about Abraham. It's not just about Isaac. It's not just about Jacob. It's not just about the children of Israel. That that it's more than being a Jewish convert. That there is a man who came from God, who died for his sin and comes to give him life. And so this man leaves Jerusalem as a hungry worshiper. He leaves Jerusalem. Like he, he, he's, he's traveled from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to worship God. That shows his hunger for spiritual things. On his way back from Jerusalem to Ethiopia, he is reading the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Like he is spending his moments along the road. He, he's not got his iPad out. Uh, he, he is not playing, you know, Call of Duty mobile. He is not doing words with friends. He is not doing any of that stuff. He is instead reading the prophet Isaiah. Like he's just trying to consume as much as he can of who God is to understand who God is and what it means for his life. He is hungry. That hunger may even be fueled by uh, he's a man who's been limited in his experience of God. He, he's a man who, as a Gentile, not among the Jewish people and their heritage, from Ethiopia, as a dark-complected man, would, would have been cut out of the inner circles and the inner courts of the temple. And so his worship of God in Jerusalem, at the very most, would have kept him at the court of Gentiles. Not, not, not quite fully on the inside, not quite fully in the status of the Jewish people. And his status as a eunuch may have even kept him because of prohibitions in the law of Moses from even being in the court of Gentiles. Um, trying to keep things rated G, uh, a eunuch uh, is a castrated male. We typically use a term like castration to talk about something that happens to livestock, something that happens to a dog. It's where the, the testes, those reproductive organs, are removed. And for an animal, it helps with their aggression, but it allows them, um, it ceases them from being able to reproduce. And here is a human being who someone else had determined needed to be castrated. And with that, uh, he lost his ability to produce testosterone. I saw that 95% of the testosterone in a male body is produced in the testes. He loses that. With that, loses his ability to likely develop more what we would consider manly features. With that, would lose his opportunity to grow as strong. With that, would lose his opportunity to probably have a deepened voice. With that, he loses the ability to help reproduce children. With that, he loses a sex drive. And that was a choice made by somebody else for him, either as a slave uh, or uh, intentionally because they wanted him to be involved in the, 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 the kingdom's government. It wasn't uncommon for high-ranking male officials to be eunuchs because it meant that they were no longer uh, a risk to the royal harem or to the women in the kingdom. And so you begin thinking about this man's story, and here is a man who has a hunger for God, 
It's evidenced by him reading the words on the way home. It's evidenced by his um, investment in even a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Evidenced by his desire to take the journey to Jerusalem and back to worship God. But he's a man who has been literally and figuratively cut off from inner access to God's very best. Unable to get nearer to the Holy of Holies, unable to maybe even worship alongside other Gentiles. He is a man who has been traumatized. He's a man who's been stigmatized. And yet he's a man who remains hungry. And on this day, all those things change for him. How do we know they changed? Because the very end of this account in Acts chapter 8 tells us that as they're driving along the road, uh, he says, there's water. What keeps me from being baptized? And so they stop the chariot and Philip baptizes him. Why is that significant? Well, because in all of Acts to this point, we have seen this repeated refrain that men and women, young and old, come to believe in Jesus. They come to place their faith in Jesus, their trust in Jesus, And that means that they will confess that he is going to be the king of their life. They're going to order their lives under his authority. That means that they're going to, in faith, have to be repenting of the things that are opposed to what God wants for them and what God intends for them. And they're going to do this about faith. That's what that word repentance means. They're going to live for themselves. And then when God's king, they're going to turn around and they're going to live for him and his purposes and his truth. And part of that faith also expresses itself in baptism. It's repeated again and again as people identify with Jesus' death burial and resurrection. There's a powerful description of what happens in baptism in Romans chapter six. We die with Christ as we are buried in the water, cleansed from our sin. And we're told in Acts chapter two, verses 38 and 39, his spirit comes to live inside of us. So that's been repeated in Acts one through seven. We've seen a repeated kind of um, formula for lack of a better term. And so here at the end of this encounter, this man has heard the gospel of Jesus. He's heard the good news about Jesus, which had to have included faith and confession and repentance and baptism. And he says, hey, what's stopping me? They stop the chariot, they get out, they go into the water and Philip baptizes him. And he's filled with joy. Everything changes because now his hope is not just in the God he's cut off from, he has limited access to, but, but a God who knows him. A God who removes the stigma. A healer who meets him in his trauma. A God who is faithful and says, listen, in my kingdom, there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. So everything changes for him. He, he leaves Jerusalem as a guy who, who loves God and wants to worship God, but a, but a, but a guy who, who can't have the same intimacy as others can have with God. And now because of Philip coming and sharing with him and proclaiming with him, to him the good news, like now he has access to that. His life is changed in so many ways, at so many levels. And how does that freedom, how does that purpose, how does that perspective, how does that hope, how does it come to the Ethiopian eunuch? It comes because the Holy Spirit led someone named Philip and prompted him to go near the chariot 
And a conversation unfolded. And the Ethiopian eunuch's life was forever changed. Because Philip was willing to allow the Spirit to lead him on an amazing adventure and work through him in incredible ways. I just love what we see in Philip. Uh, in, in verse 29, it tells us, 26, sorry. It says, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So before the Spirit ever speaks to Philip, an angel of the Lord speaks to him. And I have never, that I have recognized, um, had an angel of the Lord speak to me. I think I probably would remember it. Um, but I don't think it's beyond God to do again. Uh, if he's done it before, he can do it again. But even that, look at Philip's response. The angel says, go south. Can you, can you imagine being Philip? Um, if you read Acts chapter 8 and you see the great response to his faithful proclamation of the good news, many are coming to know Jesus. Like, if I'm Philip, like, let, me, let me just stay in Samaria. Like, this is going really well. And the angel Lord says, you know, I want you to leave this that's going so well, and I want you to go to the desert. But who's in the desert, God? Well, just go. But we don't see Philip ask all those questions. We just simply see his response. Verse 27, so he started out. God leads him, and he responds. Verse 29, the Spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. And look at Philip's response. Then Philip ran up to the chariot. Uh, we, we may not have the opportunity for an angel of the Lord to speak to us. But if we trust and follow Jesus, we're guaranteed to have his spirit inside of us who will speak to us and lead us. Now, we don't know if Philip heard an audible voice. I know people will say they've heard God speak to them. And I don't doubt that. I have never heard an audible voice myself. But there have been many times where I have sensed deep inside that God wants me to do something. And I believe that that's the spirit leading. One of those times was that occasion on that hill at Johnson University. So whether it was a voice or whether it was this inner compulsion, whoever told this story to Luke made it clear that it was the spirit that was leading Philip. And the spirit led Philip to, to go to that chariot. And he did. And because the Holy Spirit led and because Philip responded, because Philip heard, because Philip listened, an Ethiopian eunuch's whole world changed that day. He came to experience the good news of the kingdom for himself, the good news about Jesus, the good news about the, the limitless nature of God's grace. He experienced that for himself. All because a follower of Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit was willing to listen. What does it take to be able to listen to the Holy Spirit? We have to be attentive to his voice. We have to be prepared and ready to hear. We have to know that what we're feeling and what we're sensing doesn't contradict the word of God, but goes along with the heart of God. So how can we know those things? Well, one, the more we read his words, his message to us, we discover his heart. And so when we have those compulsions that we think are the Spirit, we can test them with the Word of God. God's Spirit will never lead us to contradict His words, His promises, and His character. 
if you sense and you feel God leading you to do something and it goes against God's words, God's character, God's promises, it can't be the spirit of God because the spirit of God is God. He's not gonna contradict himself. Sometimes it can get confusing. Sometimes we feel something, but if we check it with the word of God, we're like, okay, I feel this way, but this is not what God's word says, so this can't be the spirit leading. But if it doesn't contradict the word of God, then there's opportunity to respond to what the spirit is is prompting you and leading in you. How do you become attentive to his voice? How do you know that this prodding or this compulsion that you feel is him? It just comes with practice. I shared with the people first service that um, when I was in high school, I had some friends that really liked rap. And I loved the bass and I loved everything about um, the movement. I even loved the cadence of the lyrics. But when I first started listening to rap, like I could not make out anything that was being said. I was like, how do you even understand the words? How many parents have said that to their kids, right? But my friends would say, well, just keep listening. And the more I listened, the more my ears could tune in to what was being said. My son Isaiah now loves hip-hop and rap, and he'll jump in the car, and he'll be playing his music, and it takes a while, but I can begin to listen, and as my ears adjust, I can begin to hear. And the same is true of the Spirit. Like, if we will start wanting to intentionally listen, we'll slowly be able to discern what is being said and what the promptings are, and then we're, we act in faith, and that's when the adventure really begins, but we have to be willing to put ourselves in a position to hear in the first place. And can we just be honest? We love our chaos. We love our full schedules. Uh, we, we love uh, filling up every moment. You know, we get home instead of a moment of stillness because that might scare us. We flip on the TV, we turn on the radio, we have a conversation. The thought of being alone for an evening like, like horrifies us. And so, so we, we invite other people over and there's so much stuff that goes on in our lives. And the introverts in the room say, no, I like those moments. Um, but for a lot of people, there's so much chaos in their lives that we never put ourselves in a position to hear and to reflect, like, God, what do you want me to do? Do we even ask the question, God, how do you want to lead me? How do you want to use me today? How do you want to use me at my school? How do you want to use me on my team? How do you want to use me in my workplace? How do you want to use me in my neighborhood? How do you want to use the gifts and the talents and the resources that you've provided to me so that he can lead in those things? But, but if we will choose to be people who want to respond to the spirit and we practice listening, he will guide you on incredible adventures. You'll be in a restaurant one day and you will be sitting at your table and he will draw your eyes to someone in the restaurant and then you will feel that compulsion. Maybe I should buy their meal. You, you will feel the compulsion to maybe ask that waiter or waitress how you can pray for them when you see they're having a difficult day. You will find yourself in a classroom at school sitting next to someone in a desk next to you and you'll be able to observe they're having a rough day and the spirit of God will prompt you, why don't you ask how they're doing? You'll see someone sitting alone at a lunch table and you'll say, you know what? Maybe I should go sit by them. It may mess with my reputation. It may mess with something, but I'm gonna go be near them. You'll be sitting in a coffee shop and, and, and the name of a person will keep coming to mind and you'll say, okay, I don't know if this is pleasing to the spirit or not, but it doesn't go against God's word. So I'm gonna shoot them a text and see how they are. I'm gonna offer to pray for them. I'm gonna shoot them a word of scripture. And you'll see as you respond, the spirit leads you on incredible adventures. Several years ago, I was speaking with a woman that went to the church I was at, and she was sharing with me about how she had responded 
uh, some promptings of the Spirit. And she shared with me this incredible story of she was uh, dining with her children in a restaurant. And while sitting there with her kids, she observed a couple that had come in. And it's just one of those things where you could see their faces and they were in distress. And you could tell they were wrestling with heartbreak. And so she kind of had this thought, and she didn't know if it was the spirit or not, of what if, what if this couple's experiencing some tragedy? Maybe they've, they've, they've lost a child. Maybe there's a miscarriage. These are the thoughts going through her mind, and she kept doing what a lot of us would do. No, that can't be the case. But, but that, that, that nudging, that inner prompting wouldn't go away. And so finally, uh, she decided to go, and just to kind of feeling ridiculous, feeling somewhat awkward, uh, say, hey, I, I just have noticed you guys seem to be going through a hard day. It may seem weird, but can I just pray with you? And that couple began to share how they had indeed experienced a miscarriage. And they were so thankful that this person had come over to pray with them. And I'm not telling you that's how it's gonna happen every time. There are a number of times I felt the Lord leading me to do something, the Spirit prompting me, and I've done it, and it's like, I don't know. But there are also many times where he has come through. Just on Friday, I'm, I'm in a coffee shop in Knoxville and I'm putting together this message, the finishing touches on it. And um, I just had the sense there was a, a name um, of a couple people in our church that came to mind and they wouldn't leave me alone. I was like, okay, I'm learning about the spirit working through me. So what am I gonna do? So I, I sent a text to a couple people and I said, hey, I just have been thinking about you and I want you to know I'm praying for you. I'm sure this season has been hard and, I got texts back about how they were going through a really difficult time that morning. And I don't believe for a moment that that's by accident. It's the spirit of God. And so in that moment as I'm feeling that, there's, there's nothing that goes against God's word that says you can't text somebody who thinks going through a hard time. Uh, and so I just run through the checks and balances. Does this go against God's word? Nope, so I'm gonna try to act on it. And as you get in the habit and the rhythm of responding to the promptings of the spirit, you'll see that he takes you on an amazing adventure. And he works through you in incredible ways. The Spirit of God is an adventure brand. And he's way better than Yeti. He's way better than Merrill. He's way better than the North Face. He's way better than Patagonia. He's certainly way better than an adventure vehicle with one inch of ground clearance more than the others. Like, he, he is amazing. And if you will open up your life to listening and responding like Philip did, you will be amazed at whose life has changed. And the beauty of the kingdom of God is you won't always know whose lives you changed. But maybe one day we'll get the blessing of being in eternity and, and we'll get to see faces of people that were touched and transformed by our words because we listened to the Holy Spirit and he led us on an incredible adventure. That's my hope and my prayer for you. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for the beauty and the power of your word. God, I thank you that your spirit prompted Philip so many years ago, God, to go into the desert and to, to come up to the chariot and to help the Ethiopian eunuch find your hope. And God, I pray that you would give us a vision about how we can proclaim the good news in our everyday lives that we would hear your voice and we would look for opportunities in our schools, in our workplaces, in our family, in our community, that we would share, that we would be like Philip and we would just start where people are and begin there 
and we would share with them the good news of what you have done and what it means for you and all of us. Father, help us and lead us in this. In your name we pray, amen. Let's please stand together. I'm fighting the urge to, to jump into a rap song, so... <laughs> <laughs>